This concept that Turkey has introduced with these Turkish TB2 Bayraktars, in every conflict that they've been used, they've been used against Russian allies and Russian defense equipment. In the last few years, Turkey has emerged really as a drone superpower. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Karen Kaya, Senior Analyst for the Foreign Military Studies Office, specializing in Middle Eastern affairs with a particular focus on Turkey. She'll be talking to us today about the Bayraktar TB2 unmanned aerial combat vehicle, its employment in recent conflicts, and Turkey rising as a global drone manufacturer. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. We're here today with Karen Kaya. Karen, can you introduce yourself to our audience, who you are, what you're working on, and what brought you to appear on The Convergence with us? Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Karen Kaya, and I specialize in the Middle East, um, specifically for on Turkey, for the Foreign Military Studies Office, FIMSO for short, uh, which is a leading open source research organization in the Department of Defense. It's under the Office of Training and Doctrine Command of the U.S. Army. And basically, we study foreign military perspectives using open foreign sources. And as the Turkey specialist there, um, I've been following how Turkish drones, particularly the Bayraktar TB2, has been critical in conflicts ranging from Syria to Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh to Ukraine. And that is what has brought me here today. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're going to talk about those exact topics you just mentioned. So we're going to talk Turkey today. And specifically right now, we're going to ask you about the Turkish TB2 unmanned combat aerial vehicle. Can you go into detail and tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, the Bayraktar TB2 is a Turkish medium altitude long endurance drone, and it's capable of remotely controlled or autonomous flight operations. It has been called the Kalashnikov of the 21st century because it's very easy to use and it, it's very inexpensive. It's uh, easy to maintain and operate, and it doesn't require a huge defense economy or infrastructure. And it's relatively small with a low radar cross-section and low flight speed, which makes it difficult for radars to detect. Um, And it's manufactured by the Turkish uh, Baikar company, primarily for the Turkish Armed Forces. Um, And it was specifically developed by a man named Saljuk Bayraktar, who is an MIT-educated engineer, Turkish engineer, and who also happens to be the son-in-law of President Erdogan. And so compared to like U.S. and Israeli drones, the Bayraktar TB2 is significantly less expensive. So the exact cost is not known, but the price for each uh, unit is estimated to be between two to five million dollars. And so this makes it a very attractive option for countries without huge defense budgets. And so the, the drone has made a lot of headlines, most recently in Ukraine. We've hearing that the Ukrainians have written a song about it and they're naming their newborns Bayraktar and it's become a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. And before that, of course, they attracted much attention in the second Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and particularly regarding the use of drones in a conventional setting in a networked, coordinated way. 
and how relatively cheap drones can be used to great effect. And so that conflict was the one that put a global spotlight on the potential of drones and loitering munitions, uh, of course, for reconnaissance and strike missions in a conventional setting. What makes the Bayaktar TB2 kind of special and unique? You talked a little bit about that it's, it's much more affordable than a lot of the um, drones available. And we kind of think about, you know, things like smaller drones and quadcopters like DJI and things like that. But what makes the TB2 special and unique and how has Turkey itself used them? Yeah, so what makes it unique is a, a few things. So in addition to being inexpensive, it's relatively small. And I said, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the low radar cross-section and lower flight speed makes it difficult for radars to detect it. And so it can take out the anti-aircraft systems that are designed to destroy it by breaching Russian air defense systems. That's how it's been used. Uh, and then employing its laser-guided munitions. The bombs it carries can adjust their trajectories in midair and are very accurate. It's very versatile, and it's able to do far more than just strike missions. It can also serve as a communications relay, spotter, sensor, and target designator, and it can gather intelligence, conduct surveillance, and reconnaissance. And so what makes it special or unique is that through this cost-effective drone, Turkey has achieved a very delicate and difficult balance between cost and performance and technology. And so this enables the Turkish armed forces to deploy large numbers of them and effectively use them as a mobile air artillery in conventional battles, achieving overmatch by using quantity over quality. And so I said earlier that they attracted attention in Ukraine and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, but if you talk to Turkish military strategists, they would say the use of these drones in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict was actually not the first time they were used like that um, in a meaningful networked way. Now, the Turkish military actually used this uh, concept of operations for the first time during a Turkish operation in Syria in late February, March of 2020. I do have to go into this operation a little bit because it's it's a very critical operation to understand how the Bayraktars were used. And so this operation was called Operation Spring Shield. The goal was to push back Syrian regime elements in Idlib in response to an airstrike against Turkish units, which had killed uh, 36 Turkish soldiers uh, a few days earlier. And so due to the grave risks involved in operating in the Syrian airspace, because, which is very crowded, I mean, there's uh, Syrian planes, Russian planes, sometimes Israeli planes, Turkish planes, so it's very crowded airspace. Turkish military planners opted to use drones. And so to launch the operation, Turkey predominantly relied on standoff fires, both via land forces, MLRS, and artillery, and also standoff munitions from manned and unmanned aircraft. And it was the unmanned aircraft that entered Syrian airspace. And so the Bayraktar's uh, the carrying indigenous laser-guided smart munitions systems acted as forward observers, forward air controllers, and hunters all at once, conducting, you know, ISR target detection and marking for shooting missions and assault. And this was coupled with artillery and rocket fire support, electronic warfare elements, and made possible by a network that allows all of the elements in the operation to exchange real-time information with the command control centers and headquarters. And so effectively, the Turkish military strategists say that they used the drone squadrons as an air force in a conventional battle, and they argue that this was unprecedented. It was the first time that they were used in this way. 
And so the coordination between drones, artillery units, air force units, ground forces, special forces, all at once was a new strategy. And we saw that the Turkish drones were very effective against Syrian air defenses in a way that went beyond sporadic targeting of air defense systems, but rather in a systematic, coordinated, and networked way. And the drones suppressed the enemy's air defenses with a very high attrition rate on the adversary. And so this operation showed a couple of things. So when armed drones are used in a coordinated manner with other elements, like electronic warfare elements, they can be very effective against very expensive air defense systems. It also showed that drone swarms can be a difficult scenario to defend against, even for the most capable air defense systems, including Russia's panzers. And so, of course, an important component of the drone swarms were the indigenous loitering munitions designed to destroy the radars of air defense systems. Really interesting. That, that's a lot of capability in such a cost-effective drone. And I, I think that's what's so significant about this. And so we had previous guests on talk about the Nagorno-Karabakh War, and you've mentioned it here, about how, you know, any country can essentially have their own air force now. And, you know, you made mention of that in your previous answer. How did how did you see the TB2 employed and used in the Nagorno-Karabakh war? Yeah, so the Azerbaijani armed forces and the Turkish armed forces have a very organic link. And so they've been training, the, the armed forces of the two countries have been training together for a long time, and they had practiced this operation. And so it wasn't surprising to see the Azerbaijani armed forces using uh, these drones in the same way that I just explained that Turkey used them uh, in Operation Spring Shield in Syria. So basically, uh, they used the Bayraktar systematically against Armenian formations, Russian and Soviet-made air defense systems, and then um, they used them in kinetic strikes against land warfare elements, but also in a meaningful battle network and operational planning for um, ISTAR in support of fires. So the Azeri artillery and rocket systems fought in close coordination with drone warfare assets, equipment, training, and support from Turkey. And so I should mention that, you know, it wasn't just the Turkish drones that Azeri uh, military used. It was There was also Israeli drones. And so it was uh, Azerbaijani forces used both Israeli and Turkish systems for reconnaissance and strike missions and combined these with artillery and rocket strikes to break through the line of contact in southern Nagorno-Karabakh. And so they then continued using these systems to take territory um, before the ceasefire agreement was signed. And so, like I said, Azerbaijani military trains with the Turkish military. And um, so it wasn't a surprise to see them emulating the Turkish uh, operation in Syria about eight months earlier. No, that's really interesting. Um, and and. I think that actually answers some questions or um, ideas that we had about uh, the performance of the Azerbaijanis in um, the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. Part of what was pointed out before our own Mr. Uh, Sullivan, our assistant G2, and uh, Colonel Retired John Antal was not only the employment of UAVs or UAS or drones, um, that, that got a lot of headlines for a second Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, but really the overall restructuring, uh, reformation, and modernization of training uh, and, and all that's involved with that for the Azerbaijanis. Uh, and so to know that the Turkish military had worked so well with them on that in training uh, really makes a lot of sense. 
How have you seen it recently employed by the Ukrainian forces in in Ukraine against Russia? Um, has it really been a lot different than the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Yeah, so there are several differences in the way they've been used in these conflicts. So first of all, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Azerbaijan was on the offensive. And in the Ukraine conflict, Ukraine is on the defensive. So their use is a little bit different of these uh of these drones. And also, of course, Azerbaijan military has the benefit of having trained with the Turkish military uh, over many years. And so the Ukrainians don't have that advantage and they're in the middle of a war right now. So they don't have a lot of time. I mean, although they've been receiving the Bayraktars from Turkey since 2019, they've been receiving new shipments of them since the war has started. But they so there's no time to train with the Turkish military and rehearse this uh, this operation strategy. And so the one important thing about the Ukrainian conflict and these drones is that this is the first time that these drones are being tested against Russian systems in the hands of the Russian military. So in previous conflicts, they had been tested against uh, Russian systems in the hands of other countries' military. So in Syria, it was the Syrian Arab army. Um, in Libya, it was the Libyan National Army. And in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, it was the Armenian military. But in Ukraine, this is the first time that the drones are being tested against Russian weapons in the hands of the Russian military. So Azerbaijan mainly attacked Armenian armor, artillery, air defenses, and troops, while the Armenians are attacking Russian logistical lines. So we saw them taking out food trucks and fuel tankers rather than Russia's land warfare platforms, as opposed to like in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Azerbaijan tried to eliminate as much Armenian uh, firepower as possible to clear the stage for a ground assault. Now, that's again because they were on the offense. Um, Ukraine is defending its country against a large formidable enemy, but with vulnerable um, logistics. So they've been targeting these fuel tankers and food trucks, and they've had uh, pretty good success also in information operations too. They've been uh, successfully demonstrating and showing the world their footage of, of these drones taking out Russian tanks. And we saw them also emerging as a key tool in the war and the sinking of uh, Moskva, the Russian missile cruise ship. And also one other difference, I guess, is that in Azerbaijan, I think you can say that these drones led to a decisive victory for Azerbaijan and kind of changed the trajectory of the conflict. And in Ukraine, it's a little too early to say that. And we don't know if they'll change the trajectory of the conflict. Um, but so far, we can say that because of the information operations and the way that Ukraine has released video footage of them, they've had at least a psychological effect on both sides. And so also, of course, there's that strategic um, Snake Island attack in early May. Uh, when the Ukrainian Air Force staged a raid on the Russian force uh, occupying Snake Island. And the drones, the Bayraktar TB2 drones, played an important role because they uh, waged a defense suppression campaign over the island, and they knocked out at least three air defense systems, two Russian patrol boats, and a landing craft along the shore. And then they allowed the two Ukrainian Air Force uh, jets to hit the Russian military facilities. And so... So a Turkish naval expert claims that this attack on Russian patrol boats and landing craft marked the first successful uh, neutralization of naval vessels by an uncrewed system and marks the start of a new era in the use of drones in naval warfare. So, Karen, what about Turkey? They're on the rise 
globally now as a drone distributor and builder. How have they been able to accomplish all this? Yeah, it's it's true. Um, in the last few years, Turkey has emerged really as a drone superpower. Um, it's one of the four top countries in the world after the U.S., Israel and China that can produce, use, and export armed drones ex extensively. And so given the success and the cost-effective nature of the Bayraktar TB2, a lot of medium-sized countries without huge defense budgets are showing interest. And so as of right now, the Turkish defense technology company Baikar has sold this drone to a number of low- and middle-income states around the world. So in Europe, we know that uh, Albania, Poland, and Ukraine have purchased them. Uh, Lithuania is also thinking of purchasing them. Uh, in Asia, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, and Turkmenistan have acquired them. In Africa, uh, we see Morocco, Ethiopia, Algeria, Nigeria, Angola, and Rwanda have either purchased them or shown interest in buying them. And in the Gulf, we see uh, Qatar has purchased them and Saudi Arabia has expressed an interest. And so, of course, in the Caucasus, Azerbaijan has been a notable user. And so these, uh, these sales include ground control stations and the training of these countries' Air Force pilots and maintenance personnel. And so through this relationship, the Bayraktar TB2 is also an instrument of foreign policy uh, that Turkey uses to extend its geopolitical influence. And so how have they been able to accomplish this? It's a good question. Um, so Turkey is in a troublesome neighborhood. It borders Iran, Iraq, Syria. It's the only country in the world that borders those three countries at the same time. It also has uh, problems with its neighbor Greece on the West. And of course, it's also facing a low intensity conflict with the PKK. So it, it lives in a dangerous setting. It's not like Switzerland or in countries in Europe. So throughout history, Turkish decision makers saw that if you're living in such a dangerous setting, you shouldn't be fighting wars with others' weapons, um, which is what they had been doing. Turkey always used to meet its defense needs through uh, import in the past. And so they realized that doing this, especially in times of political fluctuations, is a really bad thing. And so it's always been a priority for the Turkish decision makers to establish um, a real defense technology and, and industrial base. And so in the last uh, 20 years, Turkey made it a strategic priority to reduce dependence on foreign weapons and become more self-sufficient and competitive in its defense industry. And so the development of the Bayraktar TB2 drone is part of an effort that dates back to the 90s, you know, when Turkey's modernization started with a view to become self-sufficient in the defense industry. So in the 1990s, the Turkish military initiated a $150 billion 30-year modernization program. And 60 billion of that was allocated for the land forces. And so with the 2000s and especially the 2010s, we saw the results of these investments. So like Asalsan, which is a big Turkish defense contractor, they make advanced sensors. Roketsan, again, another Turkish big defense contractor, they make um, smart munitions. And so all of these institutions are the results of decades of investments and thought of establishing a real defense industry for Turkey. And I, I should mention that these drones, you know, before the Syria operation that I mentioned earlier, they had been used before in the traditional way, just like, you know, targeting high value targets. Um, so I, I don't want to make it sound like they were just starting 
you you know to be used recently. They have been used. Turkey used them again against the PKK, and but 2020, um, that operation in Syria marked their first time being used in a network coordinated way and as a mobile air artillery, like I mentioned. I think it's really interesting what you just noted about changing their uh, military industrial base and really wanting to create their own weapon systems. And if you look at arms exporters internationally, the U.S. from 2017 to 2021 still ranked as number one uh, with about 39 percent of the global market share. Russia was second with 19 percent. And obviously, we're probably going to see a a major decrease in that after the current war going on. China is kind of growing in this space still. Uh, Turkey really was just under 1% of the global market share for international arms trades. And so they were ranked 12th overall. With the growing of the TB2 exports, uh, some of the other exquisite capabilities that you talked about being sold abroad, uh, what they're building, we saw the U.S. has, has really dominated this market in the past because of armored vehicles, because of planes, uh, and and things that have been essential to when we think about large-scale combat operations. Um, But with the growing of drones and UAS being used in major conflicts, do you see Turkey growing as a overall arms exporter uh, to maybe be in that top 10, top five uh, around the world in the global market share? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, there's a number of countries in all over the world that are showing interest in these drones. And especially, uh, like you said, the, the U.S. is dominating the market, but only for countries with very high defense budgets. And the Turkish uh, Bayraktar TB2 is attracting a lot of attention from medium-sized countries and low and middle-income countries. And so, and more and more states are showing interest. And now Turkey is starting a co-production uh, with Ukraine and also with Azerbaijan. So I definitely see this trend continuing uh, with Turkey exporting to more and more countries and probably rising up in that list. And that's really fascinating. And I think it ties into another question I had, which is really uh, with them selling to a lot of different countries uh, in the US and, and even a lot of allies only being able to sell usually to those higher income, so to speak, countries that can afford it. What kind of soft power has this really given Turkey? Uh, You talked a little bit about foreign diplomacy. Um, What kind of inroads does it give them with other nations? Uh, How how have you seen potentially soft power increase because of this? Yeah, that's a great question. It definitely gives Turkey a lot of soft power. I mean, Turkey was able to, through the use of these drones, Turkey has been able to steer the outcome of several conflicts in its favor or in its allies' favor. So that's really critical. And so that gives it a lot of geopolitical uh, and soft power. And so in Nagorno-Karabakh, so right, so Turkey supported its ally Azerbaijan to change the trajectory of that conflict. And in Ukraine, we see the drones uh, playing a force multiplier effect and they're marking new chapters in the use of drones and naval warfare. And so this gives Turkey a huge amount of soft power in geopolitics, and especially like Turkey's giving these drones to Ukraine has kind of helped its uh, relations with NATO recently, although that's a complicated uh, topic because of Turkey's you know, threat to veto Finland and, and Sweden's NATO membership. That's extremely insightful, Karen, and really helps. Honestly, we could have you on to talk uh, for another hour just about uh, Turkey and soft power and relations between NATO uh, and probably will in the future. 
with FEMSO uh, or the Foreign Military Studies Office, you specialize in Turkey, but FEMSO as a whole does a lot of work as well, looking at Russia and China. How do you think, from your perspective, China and Russia are viewing these drones, this capability out there? And also, does that change their relationship with Turkey as well? Uh, I mean, China is definitely taking notice and they're noticing that they have to also um, master the integration between drones and artillery. Um, And as far as Russia is concerned, Russians are extremely uneasy about it because uh, this concept that Turkey has introduced with these Turkish uh, TB2 Bayraktars in every conflict that they've been used, they've been used against Russian uh, allies and Russian uh, defense equipment. And so in Ukraine, I mean, Turkey's uh, using these drones that's right on Russia's doorstep. And so some of these, and as I mentioned, Ukraine and Azerbaijan are now starting co-production with Turkey. And so this again uh, is, you know, in the post-Soviet space, this bothers Russia a lot. And the Turkish drones successfully have eliminated Soviet uh, Russian weaponry in several battlegrounds now. And so it it raises questions about Russia's uh, defense complex. So they're very uneasy about that. That's an excellent answer and helps us really frame this uh, as we think about this drone becoming more proliferated and, and come around the world. So, Karen, what is what does that kind of mean for us then? You know, we've talked about uh, in one of your answers, Turkey kind of rising up as as one of the global or potentially rising up as one of the global arms distributors and exporters. What does that mean for the U.S.? Are there any implications here for us? Yeah, definitely. So we're seeing, you know, increasingly, you know, the integration of drones and loitering munitions with land-based fire support complexes, and that this is proving to be a game changer uh, in conflicts. And the entry barriers to these technologies are falling. And so medium powers with limited defense budgets are now able to acquire them. And this means that they can escalate their military activities at a low cost, and which makes uh, geopolitical issues easier to turn into war. And so that's going to complicate the operational environment for the U.S. because drones lower the cost of using force and make it easier for decision makers to resort to military power. This means they can escalate their military activities at a low cost, uh, making it easier for geopolitical issues to turn to war, because losing a pilot and losing a robotic system is not the same thing, especially if the system is $2 million as opposed to billions of dollars. And so that's going to complicate the operational environment for the U.S. Um, And so the U.S.'s use of drones has been generally for targeted attacks against high target individuals, camps or locations. And so in contrast to that, the use of the Bayraktar TV2 we can call it a modern like reconnaissance strike complex, that Soviet concept from the 1980s. So this points to a future where the U.S. and its allies will be increasingly challenged by technologies such as these capable drones with ISR and strike capabilities. And so the drones will become autonomous and start to emit no radio frequency signals, which will make them exponentially more difficult to detect and intercept. Um, so there's some reports that the Turkish Bayraktar TB2s have actually evaded detection by the radar of Russia's Moskva warship in the Black Sea. And, you know, that led to its ultimate sinking and had to change Russia's calculations in the Black Sea. Hey, Karen, that's that's awesome stuff. Those are the main questions that we had for you uh, in terms of of the TB2. And, and so now we want to transition over to what we call our rapid fire questions. We ask the same three questions to all of our guests, and it gives us a little insight into who we're talking to. So the first question 
is what's a technology or trend that keeps you up at night? Oh, deep fakes. Deep fakes freak me out. Um, the thought that we won't be able to believe or trust things that we see with our own eyes scares me because we won't be able to differentiate between what's true and, and what's not. And that scares me. Yes, uh, I, I share that one. Many of our guests have, have shared that one as well. We're already having trouble you know, figuring out what's what's true and what's not true, and that only makes it harder. Uh, so the second question, what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share on our podcast with us? Well, I'm a marathon runner, and I've run eight marathons. Eight marathons, that that is a lot. Yes. I, I don't run truthfully at all. I know Luke runs a little bit. I have run an 8K in my life, and I, I did it once, and that was it. Uh, so I do have a lot of respect and admiration for Thank people you. who can run at length that many times. That's amazing. I've run uh, a half marathon and that was a slog. So kudos to you because that is that is very incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not particularly fast or talented. I just like to to do them. And so our, our final question for you and, and many of our guests will tell us that this is the hardest one. What's your favorite movie? Oh, that one is easy for me. Um, a Beautiful Mind, which is uh, that Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. And it's the story of the mathematician John Nash's struggle with schizophrenia. And it's just, I just love that movie. Yeah, I, I think that came out when I was in high school. And I remember watching that. Is that? It's old. Yeah. It's I, could been... be, I could be wrong. Was that a Ron Howard film? Yes, Ron Howard. Yeah, yeah. okay. Excellent. I remember that one. Luke, have you seen that? Oh, many years ago. It's been it's been a while, but I like you, Matt. I think it came out when I was in middle school or high school. You were very decisive in your answers, Karen. We uh, we usually have some struggles with those. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Karen, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there a place where folks can follow you on Twitter or anywhere like that? Um, as well as uh, look for your work on FIMSO. Right now, the best place to follow me is on FIMSO's website. Fantastic. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to speak with us. This was extremely interesting, and we're going to have to have you on in the future uh, to talk all things turkey because your expertise has been greatly appreciated. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Karen Kaya, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. Music